I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Chris Villa. I consume libraries and I wear out spines here in the Great Concavity. Yes, you do, Chris. Uh, cool. You you are a a book consuming uh, prodigy, uh, I guess oh, I no. could say, um, <laughs> which is why you're here to discuss uh, Wallace and other books with us here on episode fifty eight. Welcome, welcome to the show, Chris. It's great to have you. Thank you guys so much. This is a real privilege. Oh, so. Chris, if uh, if people don't know, is the host producer, the guy behind the Leaf by Leaf uh, YouTube channel, which I think right. launched about a year ago, a little over a year ago, something yep. like that. Yeah, a year and a half ago. And yeah, a year and a half ago, and it's just done gangbusters. Like you've gotten yeah, um, just absolute great reception, and everything you post, it seems like you get like 100, 200, 300 comments in there. Yeah, and I was scrolling through some views. today, and like great great traction with folks and um people who are really wanting to dig into talking about these books with you so and, and literary like video shows in the past have not done well like <laughs> they've had some you know i'm, I'm just being honest and like yeah. mm-hmm. and i think one thing that makes your show really great is that you know you're not trying to sell anything you're not trying to um you know, get to a million subscribers and do this full time. Um, it's your passion project and yeah. your passion, I think is what keeps people watching the whole video. And, um, I think also your literary taste is important because mm-hmm. again, that's why we have you here. I think we have a lot of overlap yeah. with our tastes and, you know, when you meet someone and they can just say like, Oh, I love it that you talk about this one book and you're like, Oh man, I got even more to say about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, you just kind of fall into that routine and it's like, what about this guy? What about this guy? I remember seeing um, uh, a live video performance one time of uh, Stevie Nicks and Tori Amos and like they were playing a piano together and they were just so excited to be like, oh, play, play this song, play that, play that. And um, they compared it to being like two little kid, little girls, like trading their favorite, um, like fingernail polish colors. Like, oh, this is my color. And this is another <laughs> color. And, this is... and, you know, I kind of feel that way. Like whenever I meet someone out. You know, in the real world, because I'm going out to bars and restaurants all the time sure. and meeting new people. Yeah, we're right. just doing that a lot I'm these not, days. I uh, left this house in like <laughs> yeah. 10 months. Um, but no, when you meet someone, in the, wherever it is, and, they, and they're like, you know, not just Infinite Jess and David Foster Wallace, but all the other stuff that we'll get to that you've right. talked mm-hmm. about, um, it feels really special. And so people keep coming back to your channel, I think, to get more of that because their taste aligns with yours. So mm-hmm. um that's not really a question for you. It's really yeah. more of a no. comment. That's no, yeah, keep so, telling but, me about the success of my channel. I'm enjoying it. No, no. Uh, so it's just you, right? And for people who haven't seen yeah. it, let me just back up and say, sure. it, unlike our show where we get all of this uh, time-wasting banter, um, you do not waste time, and you don't really have interviews that I've seen. It's really just you talking about your... You did yeah. one episode where you took questions from the... People sent in questions, Um, but I think, you know, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the show. I know you've talked about it on your show, but here for our listeners, 
who haven't heard that, just, you know, how did you get into doing this and want to create this channel? And I would say too, before you start, Chris, if you haven't seen Chris's leaf by leaf Instagram account and you're not like driving or something or like operating, you know, heavy machinery at the moment, open Instagram, go to leaf by leaf and check out this this room that Chris records his videos in. It's your home library, like all yeah. custom built-in bookshelves. It is the most glorious home library I've, I think I've ever witnessed, like on all of the internet or anywhere I've ever been. It, it is just, it's a shrine to books. It's, it's so fantastic. <laughs> it's, so go look at that just to get the context of what Chris is about to say. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm going to, I'm going to have to presume that you've never seen Umberto Eco's library then. For you to say that. I don't think I have, no. <laughs> okay, good. Well, go look at that and then... Google and imaging then we'll... now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a famous story of Echo. People would come into his library and be like, oh, Jesus Christ, have you read all of these books? And he said his go-to answer was either... Um, he would usually say, oh, this and many more or something like that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah this right. and many more. Sure, sure. Uh, and I also say... Yes. Yeah, Matt, uh, you said something, you know, you made the point that I don't do uh, interviews and I, it brought up something that's uh, kind of humorous and people will probably get a kick out of because uh, by an amazing uh, series of circumstances that all began with starting this YouTube channel, I found myself on the phone with Michael Silverblatt of uh, Bookworm, which was mm -hmm. uh, amazing. The first time we talked, I kind of sat there with my tongue glued to my the roof of my mouth. <laughs> while he spoke, but he, it was funny because he, he said to me, he said, now I heard that you, you have this show. He was like, tell me, how do you do your interviews? And I said, well, they're actually not, they're not uh, interviews. And uh, I said, you know, I just tell, tell people about the, the books that I really like. And he said, no, I know, but how do you do the recording? Do you and the author get on Skype or whatever? And I was like, oh no, there's no author. <laughs> it's literally just me. And it blew his mind to think, you know, he can't fathom that I just, some guy is out there um, just sitting in front of a camera all by himself. <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, it's probably more. It's funny because I I have also <laughs> talked to Michael Silverblatt as a result yeah. of this show, and uh, I have not. He did not <laughs> seem too interested in my uh, recording setup at all, and I do talk to Michael. So <laughs> now I'm going to have to give him a call back and be like, "Just yeah, so you know, him. we got this new thing called Riverside." <sighs> yeah, and, there you go. Um, Just no, telling like you, you, I'm sure he wanted to talk about John Barth. He wanted to talk about. <laughs> That's exactly know, what Gattis I was going to say. I was going to say yeah. uh, you can. Just tell him you read some John Barth recently and want to talk to him about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the genesis of this channel, um, it's actually very ironic because for a long time, uh, I kind of you know stuck my nose up at social media, even though I'm a little bit complicit because I've uh, been working full time in in professional information technology um, since I was 15 and uh, say 21 years now and uh, in software development and web development nonetheless. And maybe because of that, I just, by the time I go home, I don't even want to look at a screen. Um, I just want to look at books. So, but you know, for a while, I, I don't have a lot of people uh, in my immediate life with whom I can talk uh, about the literature that I like and, you know, um, as obsessively, um, I was going to say yeah. deeply, but obsessively is probably more accurate. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's just this like um, tension, you know, within me that it's almost like I, I need to, I need, it needs to come out somehow. 
And yeah. uh, I remember being uh, on lunch break with a couple of friends uh, and over a coffee, I, I was, you know, boring them. I, I honestly think that <laughs> I was, re I was reading passages from a naked singularity because I was reading a naked mm. singularity at the time. And there were, there are passages in there that are so hysterical um, that I can barely get through them, reading them uh, silently or aloud <laughs> without real belly laughs, you know, not typing LOL, but really LOLing. And uh, I was reading that to him and, and one of them said, dude, will you please just create a YouTube channel or something? And I had never even thought of that, like that YouTube and literature. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, this is like opposite ends of the spectrum to me. I mean, I didn't even know that there were people um, doing what, what now I now know is playfully called booktube. Um, but you know, at the time it just, that is not something that ever crossed my mind. And so, uh, I went out there and, uh, they said, oh yeah, but they, there are all kinds of channels and uh, there are channels for everything. They said, there are channels of people rubbing feathers on microphones and people, you know, love this <laughs> stuff. And I thought, what? So, you know, YouTube has been this really weird world for me, um, because I just never really got on it. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm going to try to look for a book review. And uh, what was it? It was, uh, yeah, Harry Mulich, The Discovery of Heaven. And I thought, let me see if anyone does anything like in this vein. And I typed in, you know, Larry, Harry Mulich, Discovery of Heaven, uh, and a channel by none other than Paper Bird came up. Uh, Paper Bird, by the way, he, he lives in Austin, Texas. And uh, he his channel is really something else it's like the david lynch of book reviews is the best oh way gosh, i can describe I just it finished eraser head last night and oh that's yeah a, that's a haunting description <laughs> yeah 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 um so uh, i saw that and i thought you know what why not and so the very first video that's out there is from i think uh, june 2018 2019 and uh, it's of Jim Gower's novel Explosives, which is also now uh, <laughs> really interesting because now the second edition is coming out. And as a result yeah. of starting that channel, uh, I now have written the afterword for it, which is That's still right. unthinkable. But that was sort of the <laughs> genesis is I just, you know, it was all sort of serendipitous. You know, I the lunch break with the friend who told me to you know, exhorted me to do that. And I went and mm -hmm. looked and someone had something that sparked my interest. And I said, okay, I'll throw something out there. So the first couple, I think the second one was Douglas Hofstadter's Le Tombeau de Merho in praise of the music of language. And, you know, then I just started reading little things and learned that, you know, it's better if you are actually on the camera. Well, hello, <laughs> we have a, we have a special guest it. here. We have a special guest on the Great Concavity this week. It's Flannery Isabel Laird. Do you want to say hi, Fee? Hi. Hi. Flannery. That's Chris. That's my friend Did you Chris. Say and Flannery? That's my friend Matt. Flannery, yep. Flannery. Like Flannery O'Connor. Very nice. Right. She's also a problematic author. No offense to you. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> um, just this just in. <laughs> Going back can, to Novel Explosive, because you brought it up, I do think that is your first video on there. You know, I discovered yeah. that book through Michael Silverblatt's show, KCRW. Yep, Bookworm, me too. And uh, we, you know, we had Jim on the show. I read the book, f fell in love with it, and he, he came on our show. And uh, he actually, in 2019, came to Austin and came to our 
our little meetup we had here in Austin. We got to, yeah. to meet him and hang out with him. And, and Meredith, his wife, um, yeah. had dinner together. It's great. And, wow. I, you know, we, we uh, also a friend of the show who we haven't mentioned yet, but again, crosses paths with Jim and uh, Michael Silverblatt is Stephen Moore. And I know you've had some um, back and forth with Stephen Moore, yep. as, as have we. Yeah. And um, like I say, I've gotten the privilege of hanging out with Steve when he came here to the Ransom Center to work on the Alexander Theroux book. And I got to spend a day with him um, digging through some archives, wow. uh, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but I want to say, OK, once you committed to doing it, then, you know, if people scroll back through all your videos and look, there's a couple things that jumps out. One, like Dave said. Your setup is amazing with all the shelves. Um, I wish that I had that space. Yeah. Two is that <laughs> we can track your hair, right? Like <laughs> you can just see like where you get a haircut. <laughs> it stands out, and it's like, oh, Chris got a. <laughs> uh, but see, we don't get that from the podcast world because, thank God, people don't have to look at me. They don't um, see us very often unless we post like a picture of us on Twitter or Instagram or something, which is pretty um, rare. But a lot of people just hate the sound of their own voice. And I yeah. think, yeah. you know, the, uh, being on video is like that times 100, like doubles that sort of anxiety about mm -hmm. appearance and, you know, how do I look? Plus, people going to comment on your appearance, like even in passing, yeah. even in jest like that. There's a lot of people who it's like, and now I just delete my whole channel. And I'm going to disappear into the night, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's there is a whole and I, I won't digress on this because it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. But yeah, there is a whole slew of new dimensions and details that I never thought that I would even think of and worry about. Uh, and especially when I decided to make the investment in some upgraded equipment uh, and mm -hmm. suddenly um, everybody can see that there are indeed lines appearing on my forehead. Uh, and things like that. Uh, and yeah, the sound of my voice really isolated from the noise. You know, it can kind of get when I was just doing the onboard mic before investing in one, it could little pieces of it could get buried under the ambient noise. And now it's just like right there in an isolated box with the uh, mm -hmm. with the listener's ear. And yeah, to me, it mm -hmm. makes me recoil. But anyway, you know, it's hard to get. Over I just that. I just it took me a long time. <laughs> Self-loathing eventually declines a little bit. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once I, I, I had to cut the hair after doing that, then, you know, I lost some viewers, got some new ones. <laughs> well, even people commenting on your shelves, you know, I, I find striking, but not unsurprising because, you know, like if you go over to someone's house and let's say you don't know them that well and they have tons of books, you oh, know, yeah. if you're like us, I, I just oh. want to go over to the books yeah. and let's oh, let's yeah. talk about that. Like, books oh, and you got that book. Like, like if yeah. you have these books, it says a lot about. It's like your brain turned inside out. Yes, mm -hmm. and yes. Uh, to be able to do that, your videos that are like um, your bookshelf tours, I think, are some of your most popular ones. Where you they just are. kind of go yeah. through like, here's literary criticism, here's poetry, <laughs> here's philosophy. Um, tell us a little bit about how how or why you wanted to do those. People demand them of you. It's, it's a request. It's, yeah. It is really hilarious. They I want a play-by-play play of what exactly is on your yeah. shelf. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's part of that. They they vicariously want to peruse my shelves. 
And so that's why, of course, I don't appear in those videos because I'm trying to make it as POV as possible. Um, but it, it, I've talked to other people now. I've talked to some other booktubers, um, uh, you know, offline, and they say the same thing. They're like, I get bombarded with requests for bookshelf tours. <laughs> and I think that's it. It's that same phenomenon that you're talking about when you go over to someone's house. I mean, I'll go over to someone's house and they will clearly have books that an interior designer uh, turned sideways so that the spines don't show. And I'll go and start perusing those, trying to get my head between the lamp and the wall, <laughs> looking at them. And yeah, because it's, it is, it interests you. Like, what did, what did they read? You know, have I read that before? Is that one that I need? You know, and uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've posted a new video and people have commented, like, yeah, yeah, that's great. When's the next bookshelf tour? <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty good window into like into someone's personhood, right? Like yeah. seeing their book collection, you know. Like, sure, sure, and I yeah, yeah. It, I do believe it is an extension of my consciousness. Totally, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that um, the, the fact that you don't appear in those videos reminds me of a really funny comedian guy I like named Ed Bassmaster, and he did this <laughs> funny video where where he's doing a review of the new iPhone, but he's using the iPhone to shoot it to shoot the video so he's like oh it's got a but he doesn't realize that you can't see the it's hilarious that's um, genius to, yeah but, he's hilarious go uh, back to your um your shelves i mean there's a really basic thing that just like from a distance people can see you know the big books stick out and so like yeah, you also have yeah. a lot of series about like which like big books you know you recommend your top 10 or um which big books you haven't been able to conquer a lot yeah. of them, uh were the same ones for me um i was just looking at like the beginning of pandemic i really wanted to read alan moore's jerusalem and mm. i sent mm -hmm. a copy to my brother josh and we were like let's both read this and like the edition i have the type is just super tiny and i spent like an hour reading like two pages of it and i was like you know what I'm just, <laughs> i just need another different hobby today like this is not it's not a fun hobby um yeah. like, uh but but those let's talk about the affinity for um large books and like I, I'm trying to lead this into a discussion of infinite jest. Sure. Because yeah. you 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 have taken the time <laughs> to prepare for this interview by going back and rereading, I believe, for the second time, um, yep. infinite jest. So why don't we just say like uh, your ten top ten books? How does infinite jest fit into those other mega novels? Um, you know, and and how did you first come across it, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah. So big big books. I actually have. Uh, by again, uh, I, I always want to say reader demand, but people don't read my YouTube channel. So by viewer demand, uh, you know, a lot of people ask, can you make a video on, on reading big books and what's your approach and all this? Um, and, uh, so I do have a video out there on that. Um, I don't dare go and rewatch my videos. So who knows really what it says. <laughs> After at this you point. finish editing, they're just, they're like, Oh yeah. Never once, want to look at them again. Yeah. Once I've edited the thing and put it out there, that's it. And sometimes people will comment something very about something very specific. And I hope that mm -hmm. they, you know, if they don't timestamp it, then I have to go and try and find it. But, uh, anyway, you know, for me, um, I, yes, I do love big tomes. That's um, very apparent from your channel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there is Which, for boy, me, are we kindred spirits, hey? Sure, man. And 
for me, it's like a, a relationship. And I found out really early on in my life that I'm the type of guy who loves a serious, committed relationship. And uh, I knew that I, I was going to probably end up getting married really young. And I did. I got married when I was 20 and I'm still married Oh wow! Um, to that same woman. So 15 years now. Yeah. And um, Congrats. yeah, thank you. And uh, but I like that. I like the long game, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, I, I'm drawn to commitment and challenge. And so that's that, you know, psychologically, I think that plays into it. But but in a more literary mode um, for me and still conflating it with the, the trope of a relationship for me, you know, the longer, denser, more complex books force us, you know, by convention, by their very nature, they force us to spend more time with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't fly through it. You know, and in fact, it was funny. I told you guys, oh, give me three weeks to read Infinite Jest. And boy, was I off. You know, I thought yeah, <laughs> if I just hunkered and I forgot that Infinite Jest, too, I read it in the um, Back Bay uh, paperback. And I forgot that because of its actual dimensions and the font size is a little smaller, the dimensions yeah. of the books are a little bigger. You know, 20 pages is more like 40 pages of a normal book. Yeah. So anyway, like, you know, it, it just really forces me to slow down. Um, and not consume too quickly. And uh, which is actually part of, you know, a big point that David Foster Wallace is trying to make in the book about our, uh, our uh, natures of wanting to hit those P terminals as they, as uh, two characters talk <laughs> about it. And um, I find that, that, that you know, I can really, yeah, that's the rat reference. P that terminals. one got me yeah, the yeah, first time yeah. I read it 10 years ago. And then mm-hmm. the second time I read it, it was, that just that always stuck with me that that little scene and you know that's part of the that's part of the stuff that Michael Peach didn't really like uh, Michael Peach of course being um, being David Foster the, the editor of Infinite Jest and uh, he talked a lot about he wanted that whole you know dimension of the political Onan um, taken out and the the mountain side bits with Marat and Steeply <laughs> but anyway. You know that that really strikes a nerve. You know that uh, we are driven to hit those pleasure terminals uh, fatally. You know, just like with the la- mm-hmm. the lab rats would find uh, that button rigged up to stimulating their pleasure terminals, and they would hit it until they would die. And, and the Canadians uh, in like Manitoba are lined up like around the corner to, to ex- yeah version. Is it Manitoba? Yeah, exactly. Remember. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and as far as I remember, that was based on actual studies that, that David Foster yeah. Wallace had come across. But, you know, um, so for me, I can chew through a lot of smaller books. And don't get me wrong, there are lots of short books that are, you know, that do touch at the sublime and, and are beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a video, I talk about some of them, you know, uh, Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping being one uh, that resonated deeply with me, James Salter, Light Years, um, you know, Ann Carson's biography, autobiography of Red. There are plenty of very striking and deep, resonant short books. Um, but I find that for me, um, that long game of a big book drawing me in, not just because of the time it takes to read it, but the structure, you know, people who are doing these big tomes like Infinite Jest, they're usually doing way more than just putting words on a page. They are trying to do a total work of art with every element of the book. 
Um, the, so the structure, the form, the content, all of it. Um, and, and they're imposing a universe on you. Yeah. Right? Not yeah. Just, that's a not great just like a, a room or two. They're like, here's this entire well-realized world that I've created and, and you right. have to countenance that. <laughs> right. You have to grapple with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and so you become, you start to, you know, the book starts to, that's when you really start to, to, as Harold Bloom would say, the book really starts to read you uh, more than you read it. And I didn't really understand what he meant by that when he would first talk about it, of course, with Shakespeare um, being that Shakespeare um, reads us uh, better than we can read ourselves and better than we can read Shakespeare. And I never really got that until I started slowing down with these large books. And then I realized um, how much they, they have anticipated a lot of thoughts that we have on a daily basis. Like a, a lot of these people who have engaged in these deep total novels have anticipated and encapsulated um, and articulated all of these thoughts that you see in little sound bites and listicles as they're humorously called these, you know, cause people are too busy to read articles anymore. So you have to make lists. So listicles, yeah. you know, these things have already been well trod. Um, you'll find when you read these big books, I don't know if any of this is coherent, but yeah. You know. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you: reading the reading Infinite Justice time, this second time around, um, yeah. You know, in immersing yourself in it, because you know, one thing I've learned from your videos too is that you're super thorough, mm -hmm. and that comes to not just preparing to read something while you're reading it. You make word lists, and then yeah. after you've read it, go and make the video and write the review and do all of mm -hmm. this. And it's, so I feel like you really like give a book your your undivided attention in some yeah. ways or at least attention and um whenever you were reading infinite just this time around after a break in years and after having this youtube channel and sort of seeing the world a little bit differently and being a little bit older you know what was different for you yeah that's a that's a or great what question struck you differently what what did you enjoy more you know um the first thing that, all right, so for context for, for everyone, I, I first read Infinite Jest when I was 25. Um, and I came to it because somehow I, uh, I don't remember how, but I, I came into contact with um, his mega popular essay, a supposedly, fun, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Um, mm. And I remember reading that. I'd never read anything like that in my life. I mean, it was hysterical. Uh, this just casual, but hyper intelligent, hyper aware, um, but really humorous guy. I, I don't care for cruises myself. So I, I mean, a lot of it really, <laughs> really hit with me. Um, and so I ended up getting the collection. I guess someone may have sent me a PDF or something. Um, mm. I don't know if that's incriminating, uh, talking, saying something like that, but anyway, I went, I went and bought the, the paperback, uh, and then I found that he had the David Lynch essay and I love David Lynch. Mm. And so I thought, oh, this is perfect. Uh, I've got, and then of course, you know, the, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be long before, you know, infinite jest, uh, would be in front of my face. But when I first came to it, um, it, it was a really different experience because first of all, uh, I did not know that 
he had committed suicide. I did not know really much about him at all. I hadn't seen a, the clips of him with Charlie Rose. I hadn't read, I hadn't read anything except for David Lynch um, and a supposedly fun thing. And I knew, I think I may have known that he was somehow uh, in acquaintance with Jonathan Franzen um, of whose work <laughs> I had, I had only read the corrections at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really didn't know anything. Um, and that, that I, I really like that experience. Um, it's really hard to come by. Uh, anymore. Of course, once you start getting into things and you start reading lots of literary criticism and literary studies and anthologies and things like that, you can't help but come into contact with things about the authors. So by the time you get to books, they're books that you haven't read. You at least know some of the main, you know, most salient facts about those writers. But the first time I read Infinite Jest, I had, I, I knew nothing of David Foster Wallace. I hadn't read the DT Max biography, um, which I can't remember when that came out. Was that uh, 2012, 2012. Okay. So yeah, I certainly hadn't. Well, I was just shy of it then because I think it was, it was 20, the end of 2010, beginning of 2011 when I first read it. But again, I didn't know anything. So when I came to it, I found it like a lot of people and this took David Foster Wallace off guard, but I thought it was hilarious. You know, I, I thought here's this hyper intellectual guy who can also play at any role on stage. He is inhabiting every type of character, you know, and I, it never even, and I just saw it as man. And, and having known that he had played at journalism with the two essays I had read, I thought, man, this is just, this guy is just like a mirror. He just reflects whatever he's looking at, but in a really fun way, um, kind of like being in Barth's Funhouse, Right. And, uh, so that's the way I approached it. Now, the second time, <laughs> You know, now here it's 10 years later, um, I have a nine-year-old daughter, you know, things have uh, ratcheted up at at my job to where, you know, lots lots more responsibilities and so on. And now I know the ins and outs. I know now that he was an extremely, um, I I don't really want to say disturbed, Um, that makes it sound a little too much, but yeah. Troubled? Troubled. Yeah. Thank you. He was an extremely troubled person. Um, and that's something I did not realize before. And there's a lot, you know, in my family, um, there's a lot of, there's anxiety, panic, um, depression, things like that. And, you know, I've become in the ages from 25 to 36, I've become more, uh, acutely aware of, some of the trials that that can impose. Um, and especially when you combine it with David Foster Wallace's, you know, penchant for um, obsessive compulsive behaviors um, and things like that to, to then read this book. And, and of course, knowing that, that he committed suicide, that it just got too much um, to now read the book through that lens, to be honest with mm-hmm. you, after the after about page 68 when we first come into contact with Kate Gumpert I had to put the book aside for a few days um, hmm. because he renders the experience uh, from the inside of Kate Gumpert's mind in such a realistic way uh, to where it it, it actually disturb it actually uh, disturbed me it 
it bothered me. Um, it was real. And it has been a, a long time since I've read something um, that felt real, that really struck me. It, it went beyond the bounds of just the imagination, you know, just the, mm -hmm. the, the author setting these words on the page and then me taking them in and rousing my imagination. This went deeper uh, and it became real. Um, so I, I did. I had to put it aside for a few days. Um, and then when I felt ready to, to pick it back up, um, then coming into contact and facing this counterpoise of Hal in Candenza, who we're starting to see, you know, the beginnings of his uh, addiction and trying to break free. Uh, and then sort of the end or, or, or sorry, the beginnings of his descent and the beginnings of Don Gately's ascent. Um, th this just became so real to me. Um, it, it, it is not uh, the way that I'm going to describe it in my video is that this is not now to me, David Foster Wallace preening for us, but this is his attempt to purge himself. I really hmm. felt like all the way through, he is attempting to purge a sickness from himself through these pages. And also in the midst of that, find a cure, which could be as simple as what he calls these banalities, these platitudes that you hear about in AA. I think hmm. that's that in summary describes the biggest difference uh, for me. That's really um, interesting. I don't know if I've heard anyone put it exactly that way. Yeah, um, I like that. So I, I've, I find that really intriguing. And, you know, one, one difference um, that I've noted over the years is, like, very few people will say, like, oh, the corrections by Jonathan Franzen saved my life. Or even, <laughs> like, you know, reading 2666 is a favorite book of mine. It's like... Very few people would say, oh, that book saved my life. Uh, um, <laughs> but like with Infinite Jest, a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. uh, or they mm -hmm. say, that book changed my life. Um, and it made me um, you know, deal with some other problem that I had in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because of a lot of the characters in the book who, like you say, get what is the solution? What is the salvation? Right. Um, is often arrives via like epiphany which mm. I find to be kind of a lazy storytelling technique, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's come under fire. I've, I've seen more and more stuff about that. Like that was yeah. pretty hot and like the, you know, early in the aughts and stuff. And now it's like, okay, we need a little bit more than like a moment of realization. <laughs> right. And the same with, with Pale King, the Pale King. Um, yeah. But I think the exception to that is really Gately, who mm. he's making a conscious decision every day to try to stay sober. Yeah. And, and this is also where like you, you can see some of Wallace now knowing what you knew. And like, we've mentioned mm. this on the show before, but like whenever he died, you know, I'd been a huge fan of his for a decade and, or more mm. when he died. And I had no idea that he was a depressive himself. I had no idea that he was on medication for it. I had no yeah. idea that he was actually in AA. Um, and, and, you know, that was still the era of like oversharing and people writing memoirs and they very right. easily could have 
hinted or alluded to some of his own troubles and he didn't he put yeah. that into the fiction so reading the fiction again mm-hmm. you're you're exactly right um that it's almost impossible to read this book and not see a tortured yes soul exactly mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. really sad um mm-hmm. to to see him struggling to put this out and not really getting a response that i think is um at that same level, you know, a lot of people were just like, oh, this guy is just showing off. Like you were, you're saying of like, oh, he's just showing off. And it's like, right. I don't think so. Um, yeah. Um, the, the, the other question I have for you is actually in the total opposite direction because I um, <laughs> have never played a game of tennis in my life. Not a big really, tennis man? fan. And um, this book just, got me into tennis. Like so, I, I became pretty So Chris, I know, plays tennis because you mentioned <laughs> In your, I believe your "This Is Water" video, yeah. that mm-hmm. every time you'd play tennis, you'd be thinking about. So tennis wise, how you I know what is your tennis biography, and how does that line up with reading this book? <laughs> oh, it's uh, to say that I play tennis. <laughs> yeah, this this will be the most uninteresting uh, response I can <laughs> segment of you. the evening. <laughs> yeah, really, I, I assure you. Not to me, man. I'm here for it. Yeah, I assure you that playing tennis is not an integral part of my life in any way. And it is very, Mm -hmm. very much just, you know, a hobby and something I do uh, for exercise. And uh, I don't know, I've never had a single lesson. I've never even, you know, tried to look into improving anything. It's just something I go out there and run around and swing around and do. Um, but right. I think it's it may either it may not be so much the tennis that triggers David Foster Wallace as the level of sweat in which I'm drenched when I'm done with it. <laughs> That's uh, a are you talking about reading Infinite Jest? Yeah. Or playing tennis <laughs> on the so I, I wish I had a better answer, but I, I it's really so. I'll tell you this: I I use tennis as a as a means to stop thinking. So it's okay. sort of sort of goes in the. I, I think he did the same thing. Um, yeah. But go, going back to, to the reread of it, um, you know, were there parts of it, I assume, because you hadn't read it in 10 years or so, yeah. that, you had for, that you had forgotten about? Oh. <laughs> oh, like huge swaths. Oh, yeah. Between I mean, reads for me. Like. <laughs> one thing that became a – one thing, another, another thing that I love about big books uh, in this vein is that they're made to be reread. Um, yeah. they really are. They, they really that, reward the reread. Yeah. It, I mean, exponentially, you know, last mm-hmm. year I found myself, I not only got to reread infinite jest, thanks to you guys inviting me onto the, to the show, but I also got to reread JR and the recognitions, um, because right. of the NYRB reissue. And I also got to reread, uh, novel explosives because of, of, uh, Jim Gower asking me to do the afterword. Right. I'd like to do that soon, actually. Give it a reread. Oh, every single one of them that I just mentioned, uh, they're made mm-hmm. to be reread uh, again and again. And yeah. for me, that's a that's a plus. You know, I, I do understand the notion that <laughs> because that can sometimes be construed as saying, well, why should I bother to read this huge book and expend all this energy if I already know that I have to read it twice, you know what I mean? It almost, I can see how that might <laughs> defeat the appeal 
to think that because it almost kind of sounds like the first time you read it, it's just a throwaway. But Proust actually talked about this uh, in his epic. And uh, he talked about how what's lacking the first time that we encounter a piece of music or a piece of literature or a work of art is memory, the memory of it. Mm. And so the reason we can constantly get more out of uh, you know, the, the types of, of those aforementioned forms that he was talking about, um, the more that we load them into memory, the more we'll get at, we'll get out of them. Um, and so the first time you come to something like infinite just, you have no memory of it, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tautology, but you see what I'm saying? So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, what did I not remember? What, what did I I see for the first time as it were? I mean, Mm -hmm. 90% 90% of the book, probably. Uh, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> were there I mean, any like, were really standout things. epiphanies where you were like, oh, yes, that's a are... really great early clue that I yes. couldn't have caught the first time? One in particular comes very early on page 31 of the Back Bay paperback. Um, this is when um, James in Candenza is disguised uh, as a as a woman, I believe, and talking to um, his son, Hal, and it's the professional um, conversationalist scene. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's it. And uh, and Hal already knows that it's him, and but yeah. <laughs> it's it's just right before um, you get this great onomatopoeia for uh, slurping down some sprite or something some kind of soda the millennial fizzy i think yeah the schlugs (laughs) right before that james incandenza uh throws in this thing and he says uh he goes i say again identical to the gyroscopic balance sensor and mise-en-scene appropriation card and priapistic entertainment cartridge implanted in your very own towering father's anaplastic cerebrum. And I never, ever, I didn't catch that the first time, but here we have the very first mention of something implanted in James Incandenza's head, which of course, as we move on, will become more and more intriguing. Um, what exactly is in there? And then we'll find out how, how it is that he, uh, committed suicide and what that has to do with the internal pieces of his head. And then of course, um, reading the, uh, Hamlet inspired graveyard scene toward the end, uh, was a real treat. I mean, this, this scene when the Wraith is, uh, visiting Don Gately as he and Hal, um, though not, proximally close um, are both in a horizontal position. Um, there are all of a sudden this just whole web of connections starts mm-hmm. to converge. And that, that wraith driven graveyard scene is as powerful for me as the late scene in the recognitions, my favorite scene in the recognitions um, toward the end when the writer finds uh, Wyatt uh, cloistered within the monastery, scraping away uh, at a painting, and he's talking about how he has passed all the scientific tests. And you know, basically, this to me is that he has through art triumphed over science. But anyway, that's the recognitions. But just to say, it's as powerful as powerfully drawn as that scene. 
Um, mm-hmm. Certainly both of those things um, stood out. The Kate Gompert, the level at which that is expressed, of course, hit me. And then uh, the whole scene, and I think I, I said something about this um, on Goodreads as I was reading along and, and posted something. Um, and people immediately asked for the page numbers, but the whole scene right before, uh, Gately, I'm trying not to give things away here too, for, for uh, some readers, just, but you can spoil it. Uh, okay. Spoil it. Yeah. Spoil I don't it. know how much it'll spoil it, but right before Gately, you know, uh, gets shot and ends up in, uh, going to the hospital, that whole scene of him trying to manage the, the recovery house and yes. the whole midnight the Boston changing the cars to the other side of the street, that whole scene all the way through, I think it's something like eight pages long that that can be taken out and excerpted. And I, I dare say that that is one of the greatest ways to acquaint yourself with, with the, the, the goodness of David Foster Wallace's writing, because it has everything in it in that one episode. And some of that language was stolen from uh, Thomas Harris. I don't know if you know the story, but Thomas the, Harris the language. Yeah. The silence of the land. Yeah. The Red dragon. <laughs> You're right. Um, yeah. The description of the, the gun uh, that the Nuck has and like it's lifted word for word from red dragon. Oh really? I didn't and, know. Uh, I had no idea. In, it, yeah. This is in a post from, um, I've written it up. I didn't discover this. Someone else discovered this on our Wallace L mailing list mm-hmm. years ago. But I did a thing for the original Infinite Summer in 2009 about influences on Infinite Jest and places where he had just um, lifted wholesale lines or paragraphs from other writers, including Mary Carr. He had stolen quite a bit from the Liars Club, oh. um, especially about the... Um, Tommy Ducey character, the guy with the oh, hair yeah. lip, yeah. and he collects snakes, a drug oh, dealer. Yeah. Um, yeah. That dude is straight out of the Liars Club. Uh, even named the same thing. And um, Tommy Ducey, really? But anyways, mm-hmm. one of the other ones is a description of uh, Red Dragon, the gun, and uh, it, the, it's really well written. So, if anything, this is a plug to go back and read some Thomas Harris. Yeah, uh, Silence of the Lambs, the Red Dragon. That, that guy can actually really write. Um there's another one that's kind of funny that I made up or put in there that is the influence of um, there's a scene where Mario is talking about Hal tells Mario there's two ways to like lower the flag one is to lower it and the other one is to make the flag pull twice yeah. as high mm-hmm. and I, I just have the image of like Mario's like this tall yeah, and, like, right. jumping on a flagpole it's like Super Mario Brothers at the end of the <laughs> It's got to be a Mario Brothers reference. That's Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I, that just brought back fond memories of childhood and, and trying yeah. as hard as I could to leap over that flagpole. Over, <laughs> yeah. More than 5,000 oh. points. Is yeah. it possible? <laughs> so, um, but all that to say, I, I agree with you, especially about that scene um, at the halfway house where alternate side of the street parking just what madness and chaos and like to render it into and some of those sentences are like you know uh, half a page long yes 100 word sentence love it um and there's a great um 
thing. I, I don't know if we've linked to it before, but it's on kotki.org of a guy who um, posted this on Wallace List and then Jason Kotke got permission to repost it. It's called Building Sentences with David Foster Wallace. <laughs> and it kind of walks you through like, let's take one of these giant sentences and start at the bottom with an idea. Mm-hmm. An idea is like, and the, the sentence that he uses for this essay is about... Um, uh, Mario being the one who directed his own play mm-hmm. um, video, you know, the puppet show. Yeah. Um, and by yeah, the time you're like, okay, now let's throw in a little bit of adverbs. Let's do a little <laughs> bit. By the time you get to it, you know, the sentence is actually like yeah, 150 words, something crazy. But it starts with just the idea that like, even though Mario had some help, it was really you know, his foot on the treadle of the editing suite at the end. Like, That's the idea. <laughs> and now let's, let's watch him build it. And oh, so what beautiful. you're saying, I think that scene is like, it's a word building exercise. Oh, it really is. Yeah. Firing on all cylinders. And, um, and the other thing is just, it, I love gratuity. And but the thing is, it's, it's not even, it's not even really gratuitous either because the entire thing is building up our love and admiration for Don Gately. You know, you're rooting yeah. for this guy because anyone else, I'm telling you, I was sitting there reading it and I was just thinking, if I had to do the stuff that he's having to do, I'd be gone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'd hang it up and be gone. And mm-hmm. so, of course, we, you know, your first time through, you don't know what's getting ready to happen. And so, you're, he, he really, it also does a really good job developing that character and developing our feelings for for gately as if they weren't already you know um high enough Mm -hmm. totally and that scene is also the dead center of the novel and so you look at the way that the novel is constructed um you know how much editing and moving things around to get to that point to say okay by page whatever you know 600 we have to get gately shot um unbelievable how about that? It's pretty. It, it's pretty impressive. Like you're right. Uh, editing project, and the um, uh, one of the people you know who helped on the editing of this book was our good old friend yeah. Stephen Moore, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. and uh, initially there were um, different sections. You know, the opening section really of the whole book was that professional conversationalist scene, and right. um, to to when to me when you brought that up was something about the inability of family members to really connect and to really yeah. be able to communicate, which is also a theme in his first book, Broom of the System. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to get your, your opinion on some of those other kind of broader themes maybe that stood out to you. The humor one is big. A lot of sure. I think, really smart readers call it a funny book. So you're in good company there. Two yeah, I mean, <laughs> I... Uh, you know, I, I jotted down uh, some themes here that really stood out. Um, the theme of of trying to be hyper present and hyper aware, you know, uh, in the moment, which is there's a lot of philosophies, especially Eastern philosophies, and you know, I've since found um, that he was very interested in Buddhism and and other things like that. Um, yeah. But also the the other edge of it, which um, which you know, too much hyper awareness and too much hyper hyper presence, um, or too much consciousness. Let, let's say too much awareness 
of being conscious, which is one of these sort of recursions that come up with David Foster Wallace all over the place, can also lead to paralysis, you know, kind of like what he talks about, another platitude from AA analysis, paralysis. Um, But, you know, fathers impacting sons. Um, I think the first time I read it, I did not realize in the the one scene in the garage and it's a flashback to like the 1960s and it's 60. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, um, uh, James and Kendenza's father. So it's the, it's the grandfather. Mario. And I did not realize that the first time I read it, I thought, Oh, this is another bizarre clip. Like what we get with, um, poor Tony or something, you know, (laughs) just the, this little quick inter interspersed bit. Like what, what was that? Just, just ran across the page. But then I realized this is a much greater, he's going back generations and showing this much greater uh, conversation about uh, fathers impacting sons and humans as machines, uh, existence assertion, this, you know, how at the beginning, uh, when we're a year ahead of the book, um, how it's desperately trying to say, hey, I'm in here. And, uh, you know, Kate Gompert, we get that from her. Um you know, our, our human weakness for pleasure, which is what uh, I talked about earlier when we were talking about the P-terminals. Um, but then the, the whole commentary on talent and entertainment as spectation and, and the audience and, and the whole, you know, the whole ruse of Lyle, the sweat, li- the sweat licking, uh, levitating guru in the <laughs> weight room. You know, there's a whole scene where he's in there dispensing uh, wisdom to people, but then he, uh, you know, I, I, I never considered the level at which David Foster Wallace is playing here. Um, and he's, he's concerned about fame and what fame really means. And there's this whole bit about, um, you know, if let's say that you aspire to be a great novelist, because obviously there's probably some great novelists out there, um, for whom you have, really high admiration. Well, in a weird way, what you're trying to do is you want to achieve that height so that someone else will experience the same thing that you're experiencing for that person. So in other words, you want to get to a level at where other people are having the experience about you that you're having about this great person. But David, I can't even really articulate it very well, as well as he does in this book. And he talks about it in some of his interviews, but that was, that was really that was really something that gave me pause. Um, that's that Lamont Chu scene, right? With Lyle. That's it. That's yeah. it. Exactly. Um, I, I found that to be, to have much greater depth. And then, uh, you know, of course he, the loss of connection, um, the loss of human contact. Um, but then the finally Anadonia stuff. Yeah. And, and how, how pertinent is that right now with, um, with COVID-19 and everything, you know, we're even further abstracted from one yeah. another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm feeling that. There's a lot of serious stuff in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And like really traumatic stuff. Like my friend yeah. Curtis is reading this book and he was texting me yesterday about, he's like, he just read the part where the woman in, at the AA meeting is talking about her adoptive father. Um, oh, terrible putting the the raquel welch mask on his daughter and like that i i brought up the pdf of infinite jest on my computer and i just like kind of like read through some of that and was just like pulling some of the quotes from it and we were just like talking about how like viscerally awful 
some of the stuff in this book is like yeah that and a few others like really stand out to me um did any were there any that you forgot about in the 10 years and then you read it and you're just kind of more aghast than you remember being the first time. <laughs> yeah cer- certainly yeah. yeah there were two one one was from one of uh comes really late in the book and it's one of uh james incandenza's films yeah i know the one you're talking about yeah it, yeah that's pretty much all you have to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that one was pretty raw that one caught me off guard one. yeah yeah. yeah, I think um, I'd but, forgotten about that scene, and then when I reread it years later, I was like, I don't remember having read this. Right, I think possible? because you, <laughs> if you're like me, I think that you know my my psyche immediately my my uh, what you know my subconscious <laughs> yeah immediately yeah. kicked in and and worked to erase that from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one, yeah, that that got me. Um, but uh, you know, another one that struck me that I laughed at the first time and that. I found to be pitiful a second time was mm. when uh, Hal ends up at the wrong uh, meeting house. Group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he ends up with the, uh, all the grown men hugging teddy mm. bears uh, and so on. You know, the first time I read it, it's hilarious, right? I mean, not only because he ends up in the wrong place, you know, and he's yeah. expecting AA or, or whatever, or no, not NA, AA, but NA, I think. Right. In a, yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And so, and then we also get the tie back to the helicopter accident and lateral Alice Moore as being involved in that as well. Yes. And like that's uh, why she has her injury, right? It's because of that accident, that helicopter. accident. Yeah. And that, that was something that I didn't catch. And I mm-hmm. think that isn't that from a footnote, I think it may or no, be. no, actually, yeah. sorry. I'm actually thinking she in a footnote, uh, ends up divulging what may be well first of all we don't know if uh madam psychosis uh is super pretty or super deformed the whole time you right. know it's left yeah. sort of ambiguous and i think it's a footnote story, that we, right? exactly so uh so if you haven't read it or you've read it and haven't read the footnotes they're pretty important <laughs> yes <laughs> like we are we are big advocates on this show of, of yeah. notes being a crucial um, part of this novel <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and I don't know where I was going with that, but I, now I can't, I, I can't recall what character this is tied to. Oh, you know what? Was it Don Gately's mother who was abused by the military officer? Yeah, uh, it yeah won't I think come that to sounds me. right. Yeah. Anyway, the, the drank, scenes he of lined the, up the Heinekens and like had his yes, tabulation that's it. That's chart it. of Heinekens drank per day. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Just what a what a detail too. What what mm. a wretched detail. You know, if you're if you're drawing, <laughs> if yeah. you are drawing up a character, um, you know that abuses women. I mean, what mm. a what a a wretched detail to give them that they have a little probably one of Matt's field notes notebooks and <laughs> they they tally yeah Matt's holding <laughs> always one nearby right. and they're tallying how many Heinekens they drink each day it's, it's just you know this obsessive compulsive type thing um yeah. but yeah that that really got to me um which I mean that's no surprise though because y- any kind of abuse uh toward women is hard even if it's glanced at yeah. it's hard to take yeah our friend Matt Leader reread Infinite Just for the first time this year as well, and he was saying that he really hated the inner infant scene on his reread. Like it 
didn't really? stand out to him the first time as much and the second time he's just like I absolutely hated that part of the book like, interesting really bummed me out <laughs> yeah um while we have you, I kind of want to discuss some other books, but if there's anything else you want to bring up from um, Infinite Jest, hit, hit us with that. <laughs> yeah, any you know, and and some of it, like I said, I'll, I'm actually going to be recording. I'm taking the day off work on Monday, <laughs> and I'm going to spend time uh, making my video on Infinite Jest for the channel. Um, I'm going to try to give it my best shot, uh, but man, trying to make a single video about a book like this is... Uh, yeah, it's it's probably going to end up like the recognitions was an hour and a half long, and I trimmed it down mm -hmm. to fifty eight minutes. Um, I'll do my best. There, there's so much that can be said about it, um, but really, yeah. what we have here, um, this is one of the great books. I mean, part of me hates to say it because I know there are so many ears that don't want to hear it, um, but but it truly is an important book. Um, and one of the things um, that I jotted down um, is that this is the anatomy of melancholy for the 20th and 21st century. I think that's a great line. And I think that's a great comparison um, um, because he clearly was trying to capture something about a generation mm -hmm. right? and yeah. about um, not just sadness, not just melancholy, but something really deep and existential mm -hmm. um, that that I think a lot of people, you know, it resonates with a lot of people. And that's why it's going to continue to be important. Um, yeah. And it has been now for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Um, so. I, and like a lot of the sadness in the book seems to be tied to me to like late capitalism, you know, like this hyper entertainment society <laughs> years are corporatized but despite that like the really deep human stuff is also so timeless that is dealt with in the book so yeah it's like a, a very timely book but it's also a very timeless look at the human condition very much so yeah i've had one person um contacted me uh and they they said i i want to read infinite jest but i don't know a lot about american culture I can't remember where they were. I think they were in Indonesia. Um, and and uh, they said, will I be able to read it? And I was able to tell them, yeah, I mean, there may be some references to Jiffy Pop or you know, um, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that here and there. But because it does dig into those very serious and timeless and universal issues mm. more so than, you know, just a bunch of Americana, um, you, you will be able to read it. Yeah, and and now it's been translated into like twenty five languages. Yeah, the, yeah. the language is. I mean, it's phenomenal. Like for a long time, it was only in in English and Italian, and then Spanish, and then it's slowly grown. Where you know that doesn't happen with a book that isn't um, to have that kind of mm -hmm. universal appeal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I've been seeing on Instagram tons of Russian copies of Infinite Jest lately. Uh, like I have the Russian. Do you have the, the Russian the, one? The, yeah, I have the Russian one, but the the Finnish one just came out. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Um, but you know, Russia has uh, been interesting. You know, they have long literary history there, obviously. Sure. With big books. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the best it's writers. It's interesting of all time. to yeah. see their uptake on it because I also think there's something about these like 
really miserable countries that it resonates with them. <laughs> like, well, it's really cold and terrible to live here just as much as I'm depressed in this book. Um, <laughs> like, you don't see people, like, laying on the beach of, like, wow. Yeah, sure. Sucks, you know? <laughs> but anyways, that's, uh, that's not true. But the... Um, yeah, you went, you went uh, too I far think on that. that it, it is coming out in Greek. It is coming out in um, Chinese. Um, wow. So they can translate it into anything. Um, Hebrew is being worked on. Uh, Farsi is being worked on. Your Indonesian friend will be able to read it in his language, native language. That's amazing. But, wow. I didn't realize. Uh, I actually, I did not realize it had been translated into so many languages. So, yeah. Um, I really love in your videos, Chris, where you are sitting there um, perusing Bottom's Dream. <laughs> and, and like, Boy, can you ever ID with that? Hey, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have it over here in the background and like, I oh, used hey. to just get it out like as a uh, prop, you know, sometimes. Yes. It's yes. like, it's a great prop of like, oh. this is by far the, the longest novel I've ever owned. Oh, and yeah. I will, even if I had like infinite amount of time, I don't know that I would read it. Um, oh, it's it's and it's a it, that then that was part of the gag too. You know, I've got this <laughs> I've got this very serious look on my face, um, and I'm you know I've got bottom stream in my I'm leisurely kicked back in my chair. The other funny thing is like that book when you do read it, and I've made a couple of attempts of really yeah you know taking notes and trying to track characters and language and stuff. Um, it's just super like dirty book. Like, oh, really? It's full it of like body <laughs> sex oh, yeah. jokes and just like long pornographic mm. sections. Um, What's this book and called if you again? Think about it. Like, where can I find it? <laughs> Good luck buying it. Um, it's it's called Bottom Stream by Arno Schmidt and uh, yeah, available at you know uh, it's taking, and Noble. <laughs> right? It's not, um, but it it. Um, it was taken from the the Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Just yes. Shakespeare reference and Bottom's Dream itself, yeah. like body for its time. Mm-hmm. But Arno right. Schmidt, um, being German, took it took it pretty far. Other cool thing I think about that book is that it's um, it's all set in like a day. It's like a twenty four hour period. Oh yeah, and um, it's really like a dream uh, that is within a day. Right. Or so one night. Um, it, I, I don't know if we've ever discussed this book in too much depth on the show, but it's kind of a running gag. Yeah, but. right. I don't. Even, I didn't even bother buying it because I'm like, the way you've described it, Matt, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to get through that book. Yeah, so. it's. I mean, <laughs> it's quite a turnoff. Yeah. It. Yeah, uh, there's another uh, another pretty well known uh, guy on uh, BookTube is uh, Clifford Lee Sargent, uh, or Cliff of Better That's Than Food. Name. And he and I talked, uh, we did a video chat uh, a month or so ago. Um, and he happened, I don't know how we got there, but he happened to mention that one of the patrons of his show shipped him a copy of Bottom's Dream. And wow. it be- yeah, it became clear That's to generous. me that he, he didn't know a whole lot about it. So I grabbed my copy and I held it up and his eyes, they turned into saucers. <laughs> and he thought, he looked at it and he said, I've got to read that. And he thought, he said, what is that? What are you holding? You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I said, yeah, you, this isn't going to be just, uh, you know, this is going to be like anything you've read before. I mean, Arno Schmidt push, pushes everything. 
uh, beyond the limits. I mean, the, the syntax, the punctuation, uh, every word can be read four different ways. I mean, it's, it's, it, the it's other really crazy thing about that book is that the translator, John Woods, yeah. who he worked on it, you know, for like 20 years is that it's so complex to translate that he was also the typesetter. So like <laughs> you, you couldn't just like deliver a no, Microsoft yeah. Word document. No way. Book. No way. Um, it's got two columns plus yep. two, uh, marginalia columns yeah. with images and like multiple languages and footnotes and like oh, it's everything is so, sort of superscript just or the, the book mm-hmm. of Kells basically um, like a medieval monastic yeah. um, gold <laughs> plate yeah. document <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, the create I mean honestly he's got he's got this thing where in a single word he'll have multiple letters in that word stacked on top of each other so that the word can be read. Um, you can go with the superscripted or the subscripted letters in one word and read it two <laughs> different ways. Like oh, for wow. example, one of the titles, uh, one of the titles uh, he takes from Wagner's ring cycle. Uh, and you can either read it as the twilight of the gods or the toilet of the guts. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. awesome. You know the 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 book was published by Dalkey Archive Press. Yeah, and they Dalkey also published um, some Rest of in his Peace. collected stories, um, which they were. The stories are a little more straightforward. Uh, the other stuff Arno Schmidt has had written is not as um, bizarre or complex mm-hmm. as this book. Um, but yeah, I had the, the f- good fortune to talk with uh, the founder of Dalkey Archive, John O'Brien, oh, wow. many times. And, um, you know, at the time that press was housed here in Texas, in Victoria, Texas, University oh. of Houston, Victoria. And uh, John Woods came to Victoria for the book launch. And, you know, John O'Brien had told me that the grant they got to publish the book, uh, it's co-published with a museum in Germany, and they got money from, I believe, the German Arts Council was enough to pay for like one print run, and that's it. <laughs> uh, so yeah. like, so like, it, it was never. Uh, What's the MSRP? I don't know on that it, it can. What did you pay for it? Do you remember? I think, unbelievably, the retail price was fifty bucks. That's oh it. my goodness, that's Jeez. that's hard to believe. And, and it should have been like two hundred. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. And I I know a couple of people who bought you know, multiple copies of it. And I regret not yeah, buying multiple yeah. copies because I think they only printed like 2000. Like it's a very small print. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is. Um, I paid 135 anyway, for mine. Hmm. Yeah. It's still, it's going to go up and it's, it's worth that um, yeah. because they're so hard to find. And uh, like, as Chris just alluded to John O'Brien passed away in November and Dalkey archive press is now, kind of an imprint of uh, open letter books in Rochester and Deep Vellum here in Dallas, mm. yeah. in, in Texas and Dallas. And um, anyways, uh, it's great that they are keeping all of Dalkey Archives books in print, but that one, it's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, and the same, like, I can't imagine trying to read it on like a Kindle. Right. Oh, no, impossible. no. Like you couldn't do it. Um, oh, you, you'd fry, your, your Kindle would fry immediately <laughs> um another one i wanted to talk to you a little bit about chris was uh i i mentioned in my year in review thing that in 2020 um stephen moore published his 
notes on Alexander Theroux. Yes. And really through Stephen Moore, have I gotten to be able to appreciate Alexander Theroux more Mm -hmm. um, and to spend more time with his, all of his books really. Um, But the big one, again, like Bottom Stream is uh, out of print is Darkenville's Cat. Mm -hmm. And I know you did a video, Mm -hmm. you did a review of Darkenville's Cat. You know, one, first, give us your 10, 20 second pitch on Alexander Theroux and then Darkenville's Cat in particular. Uh, Yeah, Alexander Theroux is one of these people who, you know, just lives and breathes dictionaries. And when I say dictionaries, I mean all of them that have ever been printed across all time, apparently. (laughs) Um, He's just got one of these freakish, um, it's just this freakish ability to consume uh, words and then regurgitate them uh, in a very creative way. And Darkenville's Cat is, of, is of course, uh, and always will be the pinnacle, the showcase of his abilities. And Stephen Moore talks about that, you know, that for him, that's still the gold standard. Uh, and I agree with that. I actually came to, to Alexander Theroux by way of Stephen Moore um, in uh, my back pages. Mm-hmm. When I w- was reading through my back pages, he got me interested in Darkenville's Cat. And then I saw it was out of print. Um, and I think I had already probably bought Bottom's Dream at the time. So my book funds were spent. <laughs> <Budget>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually, last year, I read almost all of uh, Theroux's Irv. I think I read everything except uh, the Al Cap monograph. And, uh, you know, I even got a standalone copy of Theroux Metaphrasts, his 30-page treatise on his approach to art, which is the only things that – the two that I highly recommend are Theroux Metaphrasts, so you know what you're getting yourself into, uh-huh. um, and, and Darkenville's Cat. But I read them in chronological order and saved the cat for last. Right. Um, it's something that I often do when I'm coming to a new author, whatever is heralded as their magnum opus, I'll save that for last <laughs> and read through everything else chronologically. Kind of like with uh, McElroy, I'm, I'm reading everything – um, chronologically and saving women and men for last. But anyway, um, Darkenville's cat is, it's curiously readable because he doesn't, for all of the mystique around it, he's not bending, he's not bending things or bending traditions of novel writing the way that like a, a pinch on text would. It's very, very straightforward and has a very easy to follow story. It's not one of those where there's going to be some critical plot thing buried such that you won't find it until your third read. Not at oh, all. Like Infinite Jest, you mean? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly like Infinite Jest. <laughs> but um, it's very inviting, and but it rewards over and over the lover of language and the lover of just literary texts. I mean, it is unmistakably by someone who just loves literature. Um, you know, he did, he did his PhD on the emunction of language in Samuel Beckett, which emunction means to sneeze. Um, so the title, <laughs> the title alone gives you a, wow. a hint at, at Theroux. Yeah. So um, really it, it, the story, the characters, um, Dr. Crucifer, uh, rivals Ahab for best literary villain. 
Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what, what else to say, but that, that was a highlight. Matt, have you read Darkenville's cut? No, um, I, 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 um, long story, but I, I, um, I have some of Theroux's other books, um, that are kind of hit or miss for me. Honestly, I don't know, um, uh, if, if that's the accepted case or not, but like Laura Warholic, very interesting, um, strange book. He has a book <laughs> called Three Wogs, very yep. strange. Um, but I think what you're getting at is like, you know, there's actually drafts of Darkenville's cat in the Ransom Center. You got to oh, cool. come down here, Chris, and see yeah, drafts of the uh, uh, Infinite Jest and read. He actually has a book, uh, Theroux has a book of essays that has never been published that mm-hmm. resides in the ransom center um mm. but that language that you're saying like that's what keeps you engaged or um i think that's probably a talent that i look for in writers in general yeah. is like at the sentence level uh, you know what kind of vocabulary do you deploy how are you constructing those sentences it's a real craft mm. question yeah um and, and you can tell those people, like you say, who are just steeped in all these traditions of language and, um, you know, lexicography and learning. And you're going to learn something almost on every page. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, exactly. And yet it's still readable, still enjoyable, still story. Um, I, I'm curious about your word list, too, because I noticed you, you took a lot of words from. Uh, even from novel explosives, like you learn, you have oh, yeah. a long list of <laughs> your, your method. Do you want to talk a little bit about your reading method? And like you, I know you probably get questions too from your viewers about, you know, do you use sticky notes and take them out oh, and yeah. right in the front of the book? <laughs> oh and yeah. All of that. Like, Oh yeah. They, you usually do write down the words that you learn. Like it seems yes. like you enjoy that part of it. Yes. I always use the, uh, the title page to write down, uh, all the the words that are new to me, or with Darkenville's cat, the front and back of the title page, <laughs> and um, but yeah, I I don't remember when that started because I used to be horrified at marking in my books, mm-hmm. and um, I'm still horrified at cracking the spines, even though you know, kind of. Uh, Good. You know, contradic- contradictorily, at the beginning when I introduced <laughs> myself, I said yes. that I wear out spines, <laughs> but that's actually wearing them out and cracking that, them in half is different. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, it, it mortifies me. Of course, now Infinite Jest it has a nice little crease running through it, so I'll probably buy another one. Um, but I try to keep. I'll keep a reading copy of a book, a book that I really, really like. You know, I'll have a hardcover if I can, and then a reading copy that I don't have to worry too much about. But uh, anyway, the the interiors used to also be sacrosanct, and uh, but then I don't know where I first got the idea, but um, you know, it just so happened that I realized that it was it brought me more into a conversation with a book if I started to not just. Uh, underlying passages that stood out, but make a little note. Like, what is it about that that stood out? Like, can I, even if I can't articulate it, I'll put something down, like, Mm. you know, a question mark. And a question mark for me in the marginalia means I'm not really sure why this is standing out to me, but I don't want to, you know, bog down my reading experience and sit and figure it out. I'll come back to it. So the first time I read a book, um, I'm, I'm just, I want to read it. I want to experience it. I don't want to linger 
um, too much. I'm not going to try to get every single plot point. You know, if I do have one of those reading sessions where I honestly can't recall anything that I just read because my mind wasn't engaged, then yes, I'll reread that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I flag every page with a little post-it flag. Um, I underline, I take notes in the margins. Um, but the first time is I'm trying to glide through it um, at a pretty good pace. I want to get, you know, the, the taste, the flavor of the book. Um, and then the second time is when, you know, I'm going through it. And just by the nature of a second read, you'll start to see the connections that you didn't see the first time because you lacked the, the, the memory of the book at all. Um, and it's on that second reading when I really dig in and that's when I go to, you know, a journal and I, I have my journal off to the side, um, so that I can make diagrams, you know, ge genealogies if I need to, you know, if it's a Latin American novel, then I'll probably need to make a gene genealogy because everybody's going to have the same freaking name or Russian, <laughs> Russian, do that a yeah, lot too. <laughs> yeah, Russian with, with all its, uh, yeah. diminutives and everything, you know, seven yeah, different names yeah. for Alexei. Yeah, so exactly. yeah, if, I, if I'm reading Dostoevsky, I'm going to have my charts of characters. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. So for a while I, tr I did try to do like a color coding system and that just got too cumbersome. You know, I tried to be clever, like this color <laughs> highlight is for uh, uh, imagery that I really liked. And this is for an idea that was really thought provoking. And I said, you know what, this is absurd. <laughs> um, and so what I do now is I use one color ink the, for each read of a book. So the first time I went through Infinite Jest, uh, it seems that I used a, a red uh, pen. And so my marginalia and highlights are in, or, and underlinings are in red. And so the second time I went through with blue. Um, and that way I can also see how I, you know, my perception changed uh, and things yeah. like that. But uh, I'm not sure what, what more there is to, to say about it. No, I no, I'm ju I'm just curious about that, and I I think you answered my question, and uh, I can really relate to that now. I, what changed for me, I'll say, is whenever I was reviewing books really regularly for Publishers Weekly, mm. and they would send to galleys, and you would have a really tight deadline, and your review would have to be really short. Yep. And you know these galleys are kind of cheaply produced, and they're not like something you would want to just like put on the shelf and worship. It's <laughs> like it's produced to just get in your hands as quickly as possible. Yeah. And these reviews would have to be like, you know, it's like a capsule review, yep. right? So if you said, "Oh, a divorced dad in a Ohio suburb travels to Virginia." Each one of those words in the review would have to be backed up with a page number citing for fact-checking purposes yep. where like, oh, is the dad really divorced or is he separated? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I knew I would have to write a review and citing individual page numbers of like, I'm going to have to do this where I really liked the ones that where they would put like 10 blank pages in the back of the book. Yes. I would use all of those <laughs> yeah. blank pages to just fill it up with like citing page numbers of really factual stuff and then you know developing some other system for just like circling words i liked or whatever but that's um, uh that's interesting you bring that up because i i guess i should say that when i do um when i have done books for review uh for like in rain taxi i have a a handful of reviews and i, I do have to adopt a little bit different system um, especially because with rain taxi there's a 500 word limit um, 
and and some other places, different word limits, like you're saying. And then it, it does because, um, yeah, you have to cite everything, back everything up for the fact checkers. Um, and so what I'll do in that case, and actually this is pretty good practice, but at the end of every reading session, every time I sit down with the book, right behind it, I will try to type out or write down just in summary everything that I've just read, um, including, you know, it's almost just like automatic writing. Just everything I just read, the plot, the the way in which people are related, all that type of stuff. That way I have sort of a pricey of the of the book um, that I can I, I make my own cliff notes as I go along, I guess huh. you could say. That's cool. No, that I think that's a really helpful um, strategy. And you know, you're talking about writing you writing reviews for um, Rain Taxi. You have written one other um, introduction or afterward to a book that I know of, and that's the Rick Harsh book. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So that that is uh, Skulls of Istria. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, and you know, I, I've only discovered Rick Harsh through. S- various other people on the internet like yep. yourself yep um and maybe jim gower so uh how did you discover him and you know talk about his the uh, eddie vegas book yes so the the manifold destiny of eddie vegas um that was the third book of his that i read i of course <laughs> everyone that i've met just about uh, except for my connection at rain taxi um that that connection predated my YouTube channel, but everyone else in this whole literary sphere has all come out of the YouTube channel. So it's, it's pretty wild. Um, cause I, I, you know, here I was beforehand thinking, what does YouTube have to do with the literary world? And here it has brought me in touch with <laughs> all these people. Um, all these guys, yeah, all these guys, these Dave Lairds and Matt bookers of the world. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so yeah, so again, Rick, that connection came through the channel and, uh, I, I had Skulls of Istria sent to me, um, from Riverboat books at the time. And, uh, I thought, Oh, this looks interesting and sounds interesting. A you know, defrocked historian, you know, rambling on. Um, and I sat down with it and I loved it. You know, I thought the, the language was sweeping the, it reminded me of a mix of, of Henry Miller in Black Spring, uh, and, and Dostoevsky's, uh, Sick Man. And, uh, so I just wrote up a little Goodreads review and, and then Rick contacted me and, you know, said, uh, just loved the review and wanted, you know, and then little by little, you know, that led to, to him wanting to, to do an addition, uh, with me in the afterward. But the manifold destiny of Eddie Vegas. Uh, when I found out that that Rick Harsh had a book that was over seven hundred pages, that was a no brainer for me. I wanted it. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's got a pretty interesting uh, Instagram presence. Himself. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and he. Um, I was going to say Riverboat books. Like you know, I know you've talked about uh, Mad Patagonian yep. on your channel before. Yeah. And um, I have kind of a different take or opinion on that book. Yeah. And I am, I would say, less enthused about that book uh, than, okay. than you are. And and that's partly due to the way that this book, for those who don't know, this book's called The Mad Patagonian. And it's a big book. I don't know, like 1,000 pages? Yeah, 1,200. Something like that. And when it came out, the publisher, Peter... He was like trying to present it as this translated work yep. by this made up Cuban writer. And he even had this like 
photo of the Cuban writer with Bolaño. And I was like, no, that's not this guy. I know who that is. Like, why don't you just like say you wrote this book? And I was like, I was like, that the whole thing, I had a long back and forth with him. And sure. it actually kind of like bothered me to the point where I was like, man, you could be charged with like cultural appropriation or something here. Like I get that you're trying to be clever. He did the same thing anyways. All of that put me off onto like sure. I, I didn't expect it to affect my reading of the book. I was like, no, I'm a professional reviewer. I can go and just review this thing. And it was like, actually, it does matter to me if you tell me the author is a Cuban immigrant mm. or a national or as a woman or like it does matter to me. I can't just read a book in a vacuum of just the text. not caring or knowing anything about the author. Mm. Like it it does impact mm-hmm. it to me. Mm-hmm. If you say this is a true story or this is a first time novelist, sure. something about it. And that, that surprised me um, that I, I, I got so worked up. I'm still worked up about it. Yeah. <laughs> years later. Um, but your take was different. By that point, Peter is like, he's the writer. Of sure. The book. Yeah. Like, is that how you approached it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I didn't know anything, you know, I went in um, and when, uh, I, I didn't know that both, you know, both the author and the translator are made up. By the way, um, you know, he has like a fifty-page introduction by the translator of the book, and even <laughs> that—that's all fake. You're right, right. It's all fake too. And when I found out, because I was so in the mode of thinking of it as a Spanish as as a Spanish novel, um, I immediately thought, "Oh, Cervantes, Don Quixote." You know, this this is what he's doing here. Um, that's just where my mind went. You know, because the you know we're whole, presented uh, by uh, um, Don Quixote being this work that's been found and translated from the Arabic by <laughs> you know, and, uh, and and you know I thought, oh, okay, this person's taking a cue from from uh, Cervantes' ruse, and that's kind of where my mind went with it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I just, I love, I love to read so much. Um, it, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, because they, they basically just told me that I love everything. They're like, everything you read, you love, you know, you know, <laughs> there's nothing that you don't like. So, you know, they could be part of that too. I mean, it, there is something, just the act of reading is, is something that I really enjoy just to sit down um, with just about any book and, and spend time with it. So I think you're just a nicer guy than that. Or maybe more of an asshole. Yeah. Uh, well, we've definitely established that in the last 58 episodes. That could be. Matt, but uh, <laughs> Chris has had less time to so, show his true uh, colors <laughs> on our show. Um, no, I, I, I know we're uh, over an hour. So I have kind of a final question for you, knowing that like people who listen to the show, obviously like David Foster Wallace, mm. we have a lot of the same tastes. Um, you've read so much. Can you recommend something to people like us who like these big books? Maybe it's something like Mad Patagonian or the Rick Harsh book that mm-hmm. most people haven't heard. Um, or is there, you know, recommend us something based on what you know about us? Because you know, <laughs> mm. you know what we like, basically reading wise, not 
personality was. Well, you know, there's uh, Paul Anderson's Hunger's Brides, which I talk about in the, I think I talk about that in my books to keep defeating me video, which is <laughs> probably not a great way to recommend a book by saying that it has defeated me. But, and that's actually a Canadian author as well. I've, I, I've realized. This is Paul, P O U L, P O U L. Because there's a science fiction writer named Paul. No, I think it's I think it's okay. P A U L, and I'm pretty sure it's okay. Paul Anderson. Um, but it's Hunger's Brides. It's a novel of the Baroque. It's a Baroque novel, and it's very oh, that sounds hard. It's big, <laughs> physic. It's physically big, and it's also very long. Um, and and like I said, it's a Canadian author. So I, I realized uh, not too long ago that uh, my my knowledge of of Canadian literature is really abysmal so is mine so, man, to be honest yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love you so yeah i mean it isn't it isn't the life of pie guy yan martel he's yeah. canadian right or, yeah he's or, canadian yeah, yeah i think montreal based okay yeah so there's like yan martel and a couple of others i have a recommendation for you then I'll yeah. throw one at you, right. which is a, an experimental guy from the 70s who's written a wide variety of stuff, some of which got compared to Wallace named Leon Rook, R-O-O-K-E. Um, and he is, wrote a really interesting book from the point of view of a dog that's <laughs> owned by Shakespeare. Shakespeare's oh, I love dog. it. I love it. Um, but, he, but he's also written some more um, traditional uh, novels, I don't even know if he's still alive, but he was big with like some avant-garde American writers in yeah. the 70s. Um, anyways, Leon Rook, if you don't know him, he's a Leon Rook. I think he's one of the better Canadian huh. writers. Anyways, huh. keep going with your, I don't know this book, Hunter, Hunger's Brides. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. Okay, good. We've each started off with a book that the other doesn't know. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Leon's, I would say Leon Forrest, Divine Days. Um, it's on my list. Yeah, yeah. so that one on my list. is woefully uh, underread and underappreciated. All of Leon Forrest, really. I'm actually um, getting ready to undertake um, doing a long essay on his, all of his work hmm. uh, later this year. But I'm just looking at my shelves here, um, trying to look for something that you guys may Boy, not they're, know. They're glorious. Uh, yeah. Yeah, here, I'll get my face out or of just, the way. <laughs> or, no, let, let me rephrase it. Sure. Let me rephrase it, Chris. Just in general, what – like you know, we come on here and talk about books all the time. And like, people don't need to hear us recommend Don DeLillo, right? Like, they're going to know, like, oh, <laughs> right, you know, right. that guy's good. But like, what are some other writers who you think deserve more attention? Oh, well, I would say uh, Russell Pearson did The Way of Florida. Um, and this book is the writing is gorgeous. I mean, there's no, I don't use that word a lot, honestly. It sounds antiquated and uh, a little strange even when I hear myself say it, but that's really the only word for this type of writing. It's gorgeous writing. Um, Jean Giono, uh, this is an older French uh, writer. And, uh, but that is Italian. Is he not Italian? Is he French? I, I think he's French, um, even though he does have the Italian last name. Um, I can't remember how that came to be. I'll just tell you, I got assigned to read one of his books for Publishers Weekly, and I was like, fucking hated it. Oh, which and that book was only, man, it's really short. New York Review of Books as a green cover. I'll dig it up, but it was like, I hope you're like not talking about page book. No, no, no. <laughs> I would read that. Um, anyways, I read one of his books. It took me forever to, read. and I was like, I had to force myself, like, gun to my head, read one more page, and I was like, oh Jesus, I can't do it. 
Anyways, well, I can tell you that uh, I, I'm I'm a big Melville fan. I love Moby Dick. That's my favorite American. See, I got a Moby Dick novel. shirt for you. Look. Oh, look oh, at yeah. this. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Look at that. If you can see it. Yeah, that's from the Penguin paperback, right? It's a uh, Rockwell Kent yeah. illustration. Yeah, same I have an embarrassing one. Someone that I've used. never read it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, Jean Giono, he he was actually the first person to translate Moby Dick in French. Um, so the French know the French have read Moby Dick in their language uh, because of Jean Giono, and uh, as part of it, he he spent so much time reading Moby Dick and just kind of letting himself be hypnotized by Melville um, that he you know told the publisher he wanted to write an introduction, and the publisher said, "You know what? Have at it. Do whatever you want." And he ended up just kind of going crazy. Um, and the result of it was this slim book that we now have as Melville New York Review of Books put this one out too. Um, but it, it is unbelievable. It's exactly what you would expect of someone who has gotten intoxicated on Melville to write. Um, so that, I love it. That's a it. that's a small one. I mean, there are the, just recently Library of America um, brought out the short fiction of Brees Pancake. Breeze DJ Pancake. Not a fan. Yeah. So, tell you yeah, out. sure. And this is minimalism. I mean, this is, you know, more in the vein. He, he, he said in one of his letters to his mother that if it weren't for Sherwood Anderson, that he would never have written anything. So this is definitely more, uh, the lineage, the lineage of Sherwood Anderson through Hemingway, through Carver, um, the non Lishian Carver that is, or sorry, the Lishian Carver. Not the non-Lishian Carver, but yeah. So this this is more minimalism um, and uh, regional color, um, mountains of West Virginia type thing. But uh, it's it's good, Chris. I really appreciate this, and I'll tell you what. Here, uh, I will uh, hold you to it. That if you think of more, do a video about it, and we'll just watch a video. Cool. And uh, like top ten sleeper hit novels that you probably haven't heard of, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot here today, but like this is one of the benefits for us to do this show is like hit me with something good. And like you never know when you will read something that is life changing or change your whole point of view. So um, I appreciate you doing this and I appreciate you being on the show. I know we're um, we're running quite long today, (laughs) but um, and I feel like we've just only scratched the surface of, of all the yeah, stuff that we could talk about with you, Chris. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, the, the kindred vibe uh, is strong here. <laughs> well, based on, you know, you doing the time, taking the time to reread Infinite Jest. Yeah. Thank you no for kidding. that. Like, thank, thank you for being so prepared. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you're always very thorough. And I really do like that you have eclectic tastes and you read a lot of the canon. You read a lot of, you know, new stuff, small publishers, independent stuff. I really like it that you do have such broad range as a reader and I really do like all of your other fans on YouTube. I do um, look forward to new videos from you. So um, thank you for sharing your passion, doing what you do. And, um, you know, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us directly about this because uh, it's, it's kind of almost bizarre to see you like in your environment not doing a video, but talking to us. Like, it's, it's a crazy, like, alternate reality. Uh, yeah. But um, it's really been awesome, man. Thank you. 
Thank you guys so much. This is a real privilege. Oh man, awesome. Thank you. And Matt, where can where can folks find us if they want to connect? Where can Cavity Show on Instagram and Twitter and our Gmail is concavityshow at gmail.com. Since we last published an episode, we did get several people email us. Uh, and that's really awesome. We really do enjoy getting that kind of mm-hmm. feedback because unlike YouTube, you can't leave a comment here underneath your podcast. So uh, the comment system is really like comment on our Instagram or Twitter, but also if you don't want to fit it into a tweet, email us. Uh, we do appreciate that. Um, uh, that's where people can find us, Dave. I think we have a Facebook presence, but I never look yeah, at it. So. It's it's minimal, but we're there too. <laughs> Send us a message through Facebook if you want to. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Chris. And thanks as usual to Robin O'Neill for her art and to the band Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly. This has been episode 58 with Chris Via. Chris, thanks again, man. It's been such a pleasure and we look forward to all your future amazing videos and more conversation in all the back channels that we can get. Yep, me too. Catch me now as I say Into darkness I thought to be extinct Oh, we don't have to like actually start right now, but we, we also sure. should. Sure, you can trim the, you can trim the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I'll do a picture. Here we go. Um, this is like the hot shit in podcast production of this Riverside. And I just said, yeah, yeah a, this is slick. And he's like, no, we're going to just do it. And I was like, okay, so yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be your maiden voyage. Yeah. All right. <laughs>